Amen. You can be seated. Be seated. Um, let's see. Dennis, you mind grabbing me a stool? Dude? I forgot the stool around the corner. You mind grabbing that for me? Good morning, everybody. Um, good to be together this morning. We are going to be in Mark chapter 12. We'll be finishing up chapter 12. Hey, just wait a minute. We'll be finishing up chapter 12. Uh, so you can turn in your Bibles there. Um, if you are a first-time guest here, welcome to Bedrock. Man, it's exciting to be together this morning. It's good to worship. Um, we are Mark chapter 12, 18 through 27. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have them available for you at the end of the aisle. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that one. And I think we always say, if you know someone that does not own a Bible, that needs a Bible. You can take it and give it to them. It's on us. Um, so we're going to be in Mark 12, 18 through 27. We're continuing in our series, a Journey of Discipleship with Jesus, where we have just kind of walked through the book of Mark uh, slowly. Slowly. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a while uh, that we've been in the book of Mark, and it's been exciting to see the progression. Mark certainly works his way through the life of Christ. One season, series, honestly, geographical location at a time. He moves from Galilee, and now he's finding himself in Jerusalem. And we've been seeing Jesus as he comes into the temple at the beginning of chapter 11, um, where he comes into the temple and there's conflict immediately, and there's questions that are posed to him. And so last week's question uh, Brian talked about was, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus gives this incredible response, which is, render to Caesar what is to Caesar, and render to God what is God's. And he takes it, and he, he takes a denarii, Daenerys, and he, he holds it up, and what you see is the image of Caesar is on this coin, and, and the, the like, undeniable implication is that the image of God is upon us. So the bigger question is not whether we should hold, that we should be under the authority of any kind of, uh, any, anyone here, but more so, are you putting your life under the authority of God? And so it's this beautiful picture that Jesus immediately gets to the heart of this, where he is doing the same thing over and over again, and he's bringing renewal through removal. He's removing what is old, and he's bringing something new. Um, and in the end, we see that every question, one question at a time, we're, we're in chapter 12, and really, honestly, it's just a series of questions from the religious leaders at, a time, at, at, the, at the time. And so one question at a time. It's revealing that the current system is, is lacking life and it's lacking fruit. And so at the end in Mark, the end of our passage, the last thing that we were left with in Mark 12, 17, it said in the people that were around him after they asked this question, it said they marveled. Um, so they're watching. People are watching. And they're continuing to see um, that Jesus is bringing something new. So their question's, uh, now, I've gotten a little bit more dicey, they get a little bit more comical, and they get a little bit more desperate. So we're going to look at our question today. Uh, we're in Mark 12, 18 through 27. So if you have your Bibles, read the word with me. Verse 18 says, And the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man brother, man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And they pose this, this scene. They say there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, 
and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus says to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. When they raise when they raise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Pretty clear. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let's pray. Um, oh, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Um, Lord, thank you for the, all the ways that you've made yourself known in the beginning of time. Lord, for the, for the prophets that spoke of you, the fathers of our faith that um, faithfully walked with you, Lord, for, for the apostles and the disciples and Lord, the early church, and all of this points back to Jesus um, as, as the cornerstone and as at the heart of this. And so, Lord, we, we praise you for um, the revelation of Jesus Christ, Lord, for what that means that you've made yourself known through sending your Son into the world. And so, Lord, I pray that today that would be worshiped. Um, that that would be magnified, that as we read your word, that we would see that this is about you. So I, I pray that you would humble our hearts, that you would cleanse our hands, Lord, that you would, um, that you would put us in a posture where we are ready to be hearers, um, and that we are ready to respond to you. So Lord, would you, um, would you lead this time? Would you guide our words, would you guide everything in this moment by your spirit and the power that you've given us in your name? Amen. Um, all right, so spring's here, uh, which is exciting. Uh, who, who am I informing for the first time that they lost an hour of sleep last night? Anybody? I did it to Megan this morning. Carly, <laughs> love it. All right, so we didn't find out until, yeah, we looked at the clock and we saw that our, I think it was another clock that is connected to the internet that had already updated, but our actual clock on the, on the stove was an hour back, and we are like, oh yeah, it happened. That's why I feel terrible. Um, and spring, yes, yeah, spring is here, and we're talking about Easter, and it's exciting. One of my favorite things around springtime is spring cleaning. Um, it's an annual tradition. It should be in your home. Get rid of everything. Um, it's got to go, Right. It's, it's beautiful. There's this time in Fishtown where we do these like yard sales and you just bring everything out onto the front curb and you're just like, it's comical. Sometimes it's just junk, you know what I mean? And the people just go around and they, and they buy and sell stuff and it's fun. Um, Tyler Savage is the one who's been known to come away with the best deal. I'm going to give you that. Um, and, but it's, it's a good time. Spring brings new life. Uh, and so this week as we're... Um, as I was getting ready for sermon, I come downstairs in, in the building, and Megan and Sam have everything pulled out of these closets, and they're cleaning. You know, they're just like, like reorganizing everything. As I thought about this passage today, I was like, that is just like, maybe you may be at this point, but have you ever gotten to a point where you're like, 
I need to clean this, but this is not like move a couple things around. This is like I need to pull everything out and look at everything and spread it out so that I can make sense of this and then put it back in a way that is like clean and organized and can be understood. And so as, I mean, we already just read the passage, but as you read it, you're kind of like, okay, there's a lot that's touched on in there. Um, and so there's going to be, it's going to feel, I was just going to be honest, this is how it's going to feel, because this is how it felt for me. It's going to feel like we're taking one thing out, and we're looking at it and observing it and saying, okay, that's what that is, and then you're pulling something else out and saying, this is what this is, and in the end, I promise we're going to pull it all together. Um, this is where we're going. The very first thing that, we're see, that we see, the very first point that we have is that you will not see the supernatural if you are only looking for the natural. You will not see the supernatural if you are only looking for the natural. So the first question that we have to ask is, who is asking the question? So the question that is posed, they give this long explanation. And ultimately, it's a question about the resurrection, but he begins with this conversation around marriage. Um, The first thing that we ask is, who's asking the question? So there's been a series of questions throughout this chapter And they've all been asked by the Sanhedrin, which that word literally just means assembly. There's 70 men that are brought together, the Jewish leadership, and they judge. They judge over the Jewish people. So they set rules, and and they critique, and they maintain any kind of traditions. They are the ones that are put in place. And those are made up of different leaders, different kind of like groups or sects of leaders. So um, Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes. Um, the high priest, which is Caiaphas, um, and then what we have today, which is the Sadducees. Now, we haven't interacted with the Sadducees in particular all that much, so, and I think the, the question they're asking is so important to who they are. We have to understand who they are. So who were the Sadducees and what did they believe? Um, the Sadducees were part of the wealthier upper class. Uh, they were unique because they were the most conservative of the bunch, Um, They also maintained a good relationship with Rome. And so what they held was power. Um, They were, were, honestly, they were most um, invested in and most committed to anything that enabled them to maintain power. So politically, they were in a good relationship with Rome because that enabled them to have power. When it comes to religious structures, they were over the temple because they maintained the purity laws, so they had power over the social hub of an entire Jewish life. And when it came to laws, Caiaphas, the high priest, was a a Sadducee. And so they had power over that. And so in many ways, these were the ones, although there were few, they were wealthy, and they were pool from the poor. And so these these were the guys that were at the top of the chain. They were known mainly for what they rejected as opposed to what they accepted. Um, And so... They rejected, one of the things primarily that they rejected was anything that was really supernatural. So they reject, they did not believe in angels, they didn't believe in demons, they didn't believe in heaven, or that we would be there, they didn't believe in the hell, or that that would be a place that we would go. They certainly didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, So the only books that they recognized were the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's called the Pentateuch. They didn't recognize the warning and teachings of the prophets. So whereas this whole Jewish people are responding to prophets and prophecies, and they did not respond to those, uh, they understood this to be a physical world that was made of matter. And what they had was a list of rules that was given by God, and they didn't believe that God intervened with us in that. In the end, we we live, and we live according to these rules, and we die. That is what they believed. 
So they maintain control through this. And the next thing that we have to understand is why are they asking this question? So just a point of clarification, if you look in your Bibles, there may be, there's like subheadings. And they've done, there's been like helpful things that have happened like as we have put together the scriptures over time where we have come with, with chapters and verses and we've come up with subheadings and I think it's helpful. Um, but you know that if they were to like pick up their scrolls, it would have been like one big scroll and it would have just been, there would have been no chapters and verses. It would have just been a long story, right? But for us, we even have these subheadings and your subheading may see something. If you're reading the ESV, it says the Sadducees ask about the resurrection. And when we think about the resurrection, we think about the resurrection with Christ. So, um, which is probably pretty normal. Even while you're reading this, um, he's referred to his resurrection three times. And so we think about the, the cross and the empty tomb, but what they're referring to um, is something completely different. There was a belief at the time um, that God had the power to bring someone back from the dead, that there would be, when someone passes away, when someone dies, that there would be, that their soul would live on. And they categorically rejected this idea. They didn't believe that anyone existed beyond death, and there was coming a final day that there would be a final day where there would be an ultimate resurrection, which was another belief. So there's this initial resurrection that we would have if you're a follower of God. And then there's this coming day where there would be a final resurrection. So these are the things that they're talking about. The idea that Jesus himself would resurrect, actually resurrect in their time before them, I mean, is just absolutely offensive. Like there is no way they could fathom that. And so this is where they are. And they draw this out through this idea, an odd, like, again, what did we start with? Like, their questions are getting more desperate and just odd. So they draw this out through this odd conversation around marriage. So let's read it. Verse 19, they say, they come to him and they say, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So there's the, there's, there's the initial law. They're like, that's what Moses wrote. And then they're saying, let's just give you a hypothetical. You know, you're like, oh boy, here we go. And they say, verse 20, all right, let's say there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then when he died, no offspring. The second took a wife when he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection. So the resurrection, like they're kind of like, yeah, in the resurrection, right? Like that's going to happen. Um, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven have had her as a wife. And you're like, wow. Okay. Um, so the, what, they're, what they're referring to is something that's legitimate. Um, it's a law out of Deuteronomy 25. It's called leveret marriage. And so um, Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6, this is where it comes from. It says, sorry, mine. This has been happening where it just goes like dead. Um, it says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has a son, the wife of the dead must, um, shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, and the first son whom she, she shall bear succeed the name of her dead brother, and his name may not be blotted out of Israel. 
All right, so if you've never felt like there was more of a contextual gap between here and now, that maybe you may, here and then, you may feel it now. Um, I think when we think about marriage, we often, I mean, we're at this point where we live um, under democracy and we live in a place that experiences freedom. And when we think of marriage, we think it's a thing of, of love and romance and commitment, rightfully so. Um, but they are at a different time. And so when they think about marriage, there's something radically different. This, this law was put in place to protect the widow. This law was put in place so that there would be an understanding that if someone were to die, that there would be something that would continue, that that woman wouldn't be left alone, that she would be brought into the fold, and that all of her possessions would be handed down to the son, and there would be a continuation. And so for us, we're like, I can't even fathom the idea of that, but for them, that was a law that was put in for protection. And so this idea right here is one that they're referring to. What's like the irony about this is that they're referring to a law that was meant to preserve life, and they're actually talking about, they're talking about it in a way that where they're holding up death as the one that holds power, right? Because they're not believing in the resurrection. And so they're taking this law, and they're twisting it in such a way that they're, that they're undermining the law itself. So if you take something as true, and you apply it to something that is absolutely outrageous, at the end of that, you draw a conclusion that undermines the truth. That's what they're trying to do. And so they do all of this, and at the very end, Jesus gives them a very gentle response. He says, is this not the reason that you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? Um, I think, uh, I don't know, maybe he's had it. I don't know. Jesus, Jesus is at this point where he just speaks honestly. Like, he just sees right through their deception. He sees right through this entire story, and he speaks straight to the heart of the issue, and he says, this is the reason you don't get it, because you're missing two things. You don't know the Scriptures and don't know the power of God. You're missing it. And I think um, for, for them, there may, have been, there may not have been a more offensive statement that you could make. It's like... Um, it's like walking into a lawyer's office and saying, the reason that you can't understand this case is because you don't know the law. It's like walking into a doctor's office and saying you don't know medicine. It's like walking into a chef's kitchen and saying you don't know food. It's like you're in, well, they're in the temple, which is his house, but according to that culture at the time, you're in their house. He walks straight into the temple, and those that are over and have all the authority and the time, and he says, you don't know the scriptures. <sighs> I mean, that's offensive. Um, and I think um, we go all the way back to the beginning, and we talk about the Sadducees, their understanding of the world. I just remind you of the point that we have in the beginning, which is you will not see the supernatural if you are only looking for the natural. The problem was not that they had not read the Scriptures. They had read the Scriptures likely more than we have. They... They had read them backwards and forwards. The problem was that they were not looking for God in the Scriptures, but they were looking to eliminate God from the Scriptures. That's where they were. And the passage that I think about um, is Jesus, again, having another conversation. Right after he healed someone in John chapter 5, um, he's having a conversation with religious leaders. And this is what he says to them in John 5, starting with verse 36. It says, for the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, 
the very works that I am doing bear witness about me. So he's talking about what bears witness about who Jesus is. So first it's my works. Verse 37, it says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And this is it, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me and have life. A couple verses later, he says, There is one who accuses you, Moses. <laughs> That's so offensive. It's, he, I mean, Moses was the one. There's five books that they, right? Five books. Five books that they say that they're going to believe. Those five books all written by Moses. And the reason, that they're, the reason that they're offended is because they believe that Jesus is not of God. And he's saying, the one that is going to bear witness of you. If I were to have a courtroom right now and you were to come in because there's accusations, someone's going to come to the stand as a witness. You know who it's going to be? Moses. He wrote the books. And he's, what is he going to say? He's, you will believe, he says, if for if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe that his writings, how will you believe my words? It's like, they're missing it. It's not that they hadn't read the scriptures. He's saying you don't know the scriptures. Because in the scriptures, there is something supernatural. Like there's something about these, like this book. And the words that are in this book that are different than any other book. It's supernatural. And what I mean by that is that it's something that defies nature. Like this speaks of things that are bigger than this world. This speaks of power that is greater than the power that you and I have. And if our entire world is limited to the things that we see and the world that we can control, you're going to miss the whole thing. And you can read it front to back and front to back and miss the fact that there's a God at the heart of this that is greater than anything that we've ever experienced. And so you can read the scriptures every single day of your life and not see God. And that's a terrifying truth. Now, I do believe wholeheartedly that if you do that, I'm like, man, it's true. I'm praying that the Lord would just break down a hard heart and that you would see it. But at the heart of this is God. So what these men lacked was ultimately a belief in God. And as a result, they didn't know the scriptures. So the sole purpose of these scriptures is not that we would be celebrated, but the sole purpose of these scriptures is that we would know God and that he would make himself known. It's a supernatural goal. Did you ever think about that? The faith that you claim. I know that it's very, we live in a, like a world that celebrates the natural. Like we live in a world that is all about the here and now, what can be felt, what can be experienced, and I think that's breaking down. But when you say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're claiming a truth that cannot be seen. In some ways, Many ways. Like outside of Christ, like there is, like you have Christ who comes, but you're claiming to believe something that is not seen. And you're claiming to believe in a power that in this moment you can't see. So you're just like, okay, all that you have then is these, these scriptures and you have the Spirit. Um, but I think, it's, I think something's changing in our culture. Um, so I read this article 
Uh, it was written on January 30th, 2023, and it's about Barna and the recent research that they've been doing. So this is what it, this is what it says. It says, a recent study showed that many Americans are more open to God and desire spiritual growth in the wake of COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, I'm like, absolutely. I can feel it and I can sense that. And part of the reason is because we know our own spiritual limitations. Like we've, re- our own physical limitations. We've realized that there's something that could happen that's bigger than us that physically makes us feel limited. And we're realizing, wait, maybe there's something more. And so, as you keep reading, it says, a report released by the faith-based research organization Barna earlier, earlier this month found that 44% of adults in the U.S. are more open to God because of the pandemic. Among the 2,000 adults in uh, the group surveyed between October 21st and 30, 31st, 77% also said they would believe in a higher power, while 74% said they want to grow spiritually. Something's happening. So pollsters found that all generations, including uh, young Americans, want to grow spiritually, with 77% of Gen X and millennials expressing that the Barner Group CEO, Dave, expressing what the Barner Group CEO, David Kinneman, described as spiritual hunger. Can I read that again? So he... The pollsters found that all generations, including young Americans, want to grow spiritually, with 77% of Gen X and millennials expressing what Barna Group CEO David Kinneman described as spiritual hunger. Among Gen Z, 73% express such a desire, while 72% of baby boomers say the same. At 80%, a sizable majority say that they believe there is a spiritual or supernatural dimension to the world, with, uh, with half expressing certainty in the existence of the supernatural and 30% saying, I think it, it exists, but I'm not certain. So we are now living in a world where we are realizing our physical limitations and we're at a place where we're saying, there has to be something more. There has to be something more. And we're holding a book that holds supernatural power. So, supernatural power. They don't know the scriptures, and they don't know the power of God. The second thing that we see, that there is a supernatural power in Jesus. So, let's look at Jesus' response. It says, Mark, uh, verse 25, it says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Okay, I told you we're going to pull some stuff out that you're just like, all right. Um, So I think um, the initial, the reason that Jesus puts us here, I think it's because he's saying, since since you figured, you have it all figured out. Like that's who these people are. Since you have it all figured out, let me just drop a piece of knowledge in here that I would not know other than supernatural means. Um, So, when you marry, um, when you go to heaven, there is not going to be marriage. You're not going to be given to marriage, but you're like the angels. And they're just like, you know, they're just like, I thought I just explained to you why the situation couldn't possibly be so there would be no resurrection. He's like, let me explain to you what you don't understand. And so for a moment, he just drops some knowledge on him. But I think for us today, there's a part of us that's just like, um, I think I like my wife. I love my wife. You know, if I'm going to be honest, as I was reading this, I was like, what? You know, and I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. I I think that there should be this sense of like, yeah, I mean, if you're there where you're just like, all right, so marriage is not going to exist in the same way here as 
as it is in heaven, then what does that mean for me? Um, and I think it's a good sign if that were to bring grief in some way. Um, but I think I, before, before, before we just kind of wallow in the fact that there, it's going to be different, I think something that's helpful for us to see is that there are some things that are guaranteed. And even just about the questions of like, what is, what is heaven going to be like? Um, and we're not going to go through all of what heaven's going to be like, but, and we're not going to talk about a new heaven and a new earth and everything that there is. But I do think it's helpful for us to see that there's, there is precedence throughout Scripture for um, earthly relationships to continue in some way in heaven. Um, while there's not going to be marriage, uh, I do see David longing to see his son again in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Um, while there's not going to be marriage, I do see Martha believing that she will see her at the time dead brother Lazarus again at the resurrection. And while there's not going to be marriage, I do see Paul encourage the Thessalonian church when he says in Thessalonians 4.14 that there's, since Jesus' death and resurrection, we believe in that he rose again, even though um, God will bring with him those who had fallen asleep. Um, and so while heaven will not have the earthly institution of marriage, uh, it will also not have the presence of sin. And it will have the presence of God. And I don't think that it's a stretch to say that whatever earthly understanding and knowledge of one another that you currently have uh, will not be worth comparing to the depth of knowledge that you will have in relationship with one another and God in heaven. Will will it be the same as in marriage? No. Um, But I think we've got to be careful not to be so wrapped up in our earthly blessings and our earthly condition that we're robbed of the proper longing for an, an expectation for heavenly things. Um, so even the purest of blessings in this life that are still like tainted by sin, they're but a glimpse of the eternal, unhindered joy that we're going to have together in heaven. I think a verse that I think of is 1 Corinthians 2.9, where Paul again encouraged his believers. He says, but as it is is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. This idea that you cannot, you have never seen this. It's not audible, you've never heard this. Your imagination can't even fathom this. But there is something prepared for you, and those who love him in heaven. It's greater. So Jesus continues on after this ridiculous argument. The argument from the beginning was that because there's levirate marriage and we're holding to the law of Moses, um, that because of that, that that would cause chaos in the resurrection. So therefore, there can't be a resurrection. So they're holding him, Jesus, and his claim of the resurrection against the law of Moses. And Jesus answers this with an addressing first what, it, what marriage is going to be like in heaven, dropping a piece of knowledge on them that is just bigger than anything they've ever comprehended. Um, and, then, and then he goes to their words. He, goes, he could have gone to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, and said, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So he could have said, I'm going to tell you why the resurrection is going to happen because the prophet Daniel spoke of it. But the reason that he doesn't say that is because they only believe in the first five books, right? And so he says, I'm going to say it the way that you understand it. 
Um, and he says, do you not remember the story of the bush? And again, remember, we don't have chapters and verses. So he's like, do you remember the story? There's this long scroll. And on that scroll, there's this significant story. He says this in 26. And as the dead being raised have not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So this argument is a grammatical one. This is something that would hold up in the Jewish court of law, something that they were familiar with. If, if he is the God of Jacob and the God of Isaac and the God of Abraham, what it would have said, I think if the resurrection didn't happen, he would have said, I was. I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he says that's not what he says. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what he's saying is, the implication is there that they are still alive. There's still life in these men. And he's saying, as he speaks to Moses from the book, he's saying, we speak to you, like this is, this, there is eternal power that has come from God to these men, and there's life in them right now. So they are still here with us. The resurrection power lives in God. Like that's the statement that he's making, and it's unmistakable. So I think there's a story. Um, if you have your Bibles, can you turn with me to John chapter 11? There's a story that sums all this up really nicely. John chapter 11, verse 17. What we said in the beginning is you will not see supernatural if you are only looking for the natural. And what we see here is there is supernatural power in Jesus. So if his claim is that God, um, they're claiming there is no resurrection, and what he's claiming is that God has resurrection power, that he has power over death. Um, in John chapter 11, Jesus has already made his way. He's, I love the personal relationships that Jesus has throughout his life. Some of the most significant are Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Um, and there's, Lazarus is described as, as someone that was close to him, and so he's, he's a close friend, and, and I think um, it shows. It shows in the interaction that, that, that we're about to read. Um, but when it comes to the resurrection, uh, I don't know that there's any clearer statement than we have than, than what we're going to read. Let's start in verse 17. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days all right, so Lazarus has died, um, and he gets put into a tomb, which is traditional. So for four days, which is the amount of time that they would say there's certain that, he, that he's dead. Um, and so Jesus shows up on the scene. It says Bethany was near Jerusalem, which we understand that because we've been talking about this. Um, it says about two miles off. I told you, it's like two miles. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Um, I, that statement right there just resonates. Where you just, you feel the grief in this woman. Where there is, death creates a separation that is unlike anything else that we know in this world. Um, I can relate to this. My brother passed away when I was a senior in high school. And I get that statement. 
Like, I, I understand where her heart is. Personally, I remember crying out. At the time, I wasn't a follower of Jesus, but I remember crying out to the Lord saying, Lord, what can you do? Because I don't know that I can go on. And, and so she meets him with this heart where she's just like, Jesus, like, if you would have just been here. And if you know the story, just he kind of just goes slowly. Like, you just wish, as you're reading the story, you hope that he moves faster, but he just doesn't. And so he shows up. It's four days after Lazarus has died. And she says, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And she says, but even now, and there's faith. She says, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus says this to comfort her. He says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last days. It was everything that we just talked about. Martha's understanding of the resurrection is the same as the traditional Jewish understanding of the resurrection at this time, where there's this, man, there's going to be a final day where we are going to be resurrected together. And she's basically saying, I get that, Jesus. I understand he's going to be resurrected on the last day. But what about now? Like, what about right now? Because I can't, I can't go on. I just, I want my brother back. And, and, and he responds to her. He says to her, most powerful words. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She, she doesn't understand fully who Jesus is. Not yet. She's learning. What she sees here is that she believes that there's coming a day where God, maybe she has enough faith to believe that God has the power of the resurrection, but what she doesn't realize is that God is standing before her right there. That power is in her presence. Because where Jesus is, God is. So as the Sadducees come and they question the resurrection, what they don't realize is that they, they don't know the power of God. What they really don't understand is that power is the one that they're questioning. The power of the resurrection is in Jesus Christ. He has that authority. And she says to him, she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And then you see that Jesus weeps and he calls Lazarus out of the grave because the resurrection is real. Because the power of the resurrection from the beginning of time is something that existed in God. Because the power of the resurrection is something that is coming for the end of time. But also, the power of the resurrection is fully embodied in Christ. And what they don't understand and which is coming soon is that the power of the resurrection is what's going to leave an empty tomb. It's happening. That there is real life over death. So as um, the Haney's come up, you guys have been such a blessing for us. Thank you. Um, as the Haney's come up, I just wanted to ask you this question. Um, I know that it's super easy to live in this world and only see the natural. Um, but when you read the scriptures and when you question in your own heart and you're honest with yourself, what do you believe? Do you believe in the supernatural? 
do you believe that there's something more? Do you believe that there's something more than this world? Um, and if you do, then what do you believe? And I, I think you may be at a point now where you're like, if you're like, okay, I, I, that's all I can say. All I can say is that I believe that there is more than the physical. Okay, that's a starting point. Um, you may be at a point where I'm like, I believe, I believe that God wrote this book and there's more. I believe that he explains the supernatural. Okay, well, has that belief been something that is carried out in your life? I think what we see and what we're called to here is a belief, a turning from, a turning from the things that we were and a turning towards Christ. And I think what we see here is that Jesus displays that, that belief and, and expressing that belief in him is something um, that is met with forgiveness. It's met with life through Jesus. It is met with something that is greater than what we understand in this world. Um, I think as, as we look at this and as we, and it's very easy to criticize the religious leaders, um, but I think we have questions of our own. Um, I think we do. And as we ask these questions, how are we asking them? Are we asking them from a place of belief or are we asking them from a place of skepticism? I think um, what you'll find is Jesus has answers for our questions um, if we would only believe. So let me pray for us. Lord, um, I just feel... Uh, the need to, to cry out and say, Lord, um, for many of us, it's the fact that we believe and that we're, we pray that you would help our unbelief. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us see the power of the resurrection. I pray that you would help us see it in this story, that we would help us see it in the cross and the empty tomb. But Lord, would, you, would we see it in our own lives? Would you resurrect us? Lord, would you bring life? out of something that, um, Lord, is just not alive. I, I pray that you, through your power in our church and throughout the city of Philadelphia, would you bring new life to this city through the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, would that be proclaimed um, all throughout the city today? And would your spirit just equip us to hear and respond to you? But I pray that if there's someone in this room today that has not responded to you, Lord, is just questioning whether or not they can trust you to take the next step, Lord, I pray that they would. Um, that they would see that as this world offers many physical solutions, that there's more. That those run dry and that there's more. That there's a supernatural power that you display. And Lord, I pray that you would just help us run to you today. Um, we love you. We're grateful to be yours. In your name, amen.